The Lord Almighty reigns. No matter what happened this week, the Lord Almighty reigns. No matter the headlines, the Lord Almighty reigns. No matter the chaos in culture or in your life, the Lord Almighty reigns. You can fill in the blank, friends, and know that the Lord Almighty reigns. And as we come back to Exodus chapter 20 this morning, in part, what we are seeing in these Ten Commandments is merely another expression of the fact that the Lord Almighty reigns. That through these, what God is saying is that the Lord Almighty is to reign in His people, to reign in our worship, to reign in our relationships, to reign in our view of the things of the world, to reign in how we use our time, to reign in all these matters. There is nothing better for the human soul than to live under the reign of the Lord Almighty. There is no other place to find joy than under the reign of the Lord Almighty. There is no other place to know peace than under the reign of the Lord Almighty. So as we hear these commandments one by one, we ought not to see a strict teacher with a yardstick slapping at our knuckles. We ought to see a God who, if we will live these ways, we will know the reign of the Lord Almighty in our lives, and we will know the joy that comes with obedience, and we will know the hope of walking with Him, and we will know His peace, and we will have His strength. The Lord Almighty reigns. We're going to read together all of these Ten Commandments again in Exodus 20. If you're using a Bible in the pews, that's on page 61. And we'll read from verse 1 to verse 17. This is what the Spirit says to us. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but, though, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, these are your words, and we need the help of your Spirit to hear them rightly, to love them, to live according to them. And so we ask for your help this morning. Oh God, how we pray for your Spirit to work this morning. How we pray your truth will shine brightly. How we pray that this would not just be another rote exercise of intellectual study, but that we will hear your voice together and having heard your voice be changed by it. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have a question for you. Has your mouth ever gotten you into trouble? Have your words ever made a mess? Has your tongue ever been more like a sword? Well, to one of those answers, to one of those questions, I believe the answer for every one of us who can speak would say yes. And if you'd say no, well, just hang on. We're going to get to the ninth commandment here in just a moment. Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 21 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. How many conflicts wouldn't have exploded? How many friendships wouldn't have been strained? How many days of marriage wouldn't have been ruined? How many churches wouldn't have been divided if we just guarded our mouths? According to James 3, the tongue can be used for great good and for great evil. We can come into a room like this, and as we have just done, we can use our mouths to lift the Lord up. But James says we can just as easily walk out of this room and tear one another down. So that with the same mouth, we give God great glory and cause others great harm. And so it's no surprise that repeatedly in the Bible, God speaks about how we should speak. And one of the fundamental issues when it comes to our words is that they must be true. 
And the reason this is such a fundamental issue is because God's people, our lives are to be patterned after God. We are God's people. He has told us, be holy as I am holy. So our lives are to reflect the character of God, which means our words are to reflect the character of God's words. And God is a God of truth. God the Father is a God of truth. Titus 1 says He never lies. God the Son, the Lord Jesus, is the God of truth. In John 1 it says He came full of grace and truth. God the Spirit is the God of truth. John 16, Jesus calls Him the Spirit of truth. And God's people must follow this pattern so that if God is a God of truth, God's people are to be a people of truth, committed to preaching truth, committed to believing truth, committed to loving truth, committed to living according to the truth, committed to speaking truth. And speaking truth is explicitly called for here in the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, in order to think about this, first I want us to think about the specific context, all right? Now, what I don't mean, often when we speak about context, we're talking about where a verse appears or where a particular paragraph appears, and that is important. These are God's people receiving God's words at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has rescued them out of Egypt through Moses. He says to them, I am the Lord your God. You are to be a holy nation, a holy people, and these commandments teach them what it means to be holy. But that's not what I mean by the specific context. I mean there is a specific context that this kind of language speaks to. And you'll figure it out pretty quickly if you just think about it for a moment. Right? So as Christians, we talk about witness. I mean, here's this word, witness. We talk about we want to have a good witness, right? We talk about it in terms of shining the light of Jesus in our community. We talk about it in terms of sharing our faith with those who don't believe, testifying to the good news of Jesus and His saving death. But if we take those words, those words witness and testify, out of the church, out of this room, let's say, and just put it into society at large, when you hear witness and testify, what do you think of? A courtroom, right? And actually that's how the New Old Testament, how the Old Testament typically uses the word witness, is to speak of someone giving evidence of, of what they saw, of what they heard in some case. But then the question comes, why would God give a commandment about truthful testimony in court? That seems very narrow, doesn't it? Well, just think about that for a minute. Why is it that God would be concerned for truthful testimony in court? Well, first, Israel is going to have to deal with legal issues. Remember, he's establishing a nation. He's not just giving some pointers for healthy living as an individual. He's establishing a nation, what it means to live in relationship with one another. And here, he's establishing a nation state. He's establishing a people. And they'll have to settle these legal issues. I mean, just think about the three commands that came before this, right? Murder, adultery, and theft. 
All of these are outlawed, but how would you prosecute them in the culture, in the society? The only thing you've got to go on is witnesses, isn't it? There are no security cameras with footage. There are no cell phones with information. There's no paper trail. There are no bank accounts to trace. There are no DNA tests. There are only witnesses. And so the integrity of the witness is crucial. The court system of any nation depends on the words of its people. And without integrity in witnesses, I mean, chaos ensues. Philip Ryken says, where there is no truth, there can be no justice. So, they ha- so this is why God speaks to it. But another reason God speaks to it is that Israel must be a holy nation. We've seen that over and over again, right? They're not to be like the nations around them. And in the justice system of the ancient world... You're not presumed innocent until proven guilty. You're presumed guilty until you're proven innocent. And a person could be found guilty and even condemned to death on the testimony of one witness. That's how things operated. So someone could just have a personal vendetta and decide for whatever reason to accuse you of some crime, and on their word alone, the word guilty hangs over you unless you can produce some evidence to silence that accusation with no doubt. Rather than guilt needing to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, innocence had to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I don't have to tell you, do I, that our current approach to justice, at least, you know, the public opinion kind of justice, takes this exact approach, whether it's about a crime or whether it's about the character of some person, because as soon as an accusation is is put out there, so many people simply assume guilt. And they will take their torches and their pitchforks to social media and they will just, they will chant and stomp and rave that guilt before anything else is said, before any evidence is heard, before before the courts, which is the way that at least crimes should be adjudicated, before that even ever happens. It's actually a return to the justice system of the ancient world. People today in our society are presumed guilty unless they can really, 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 really prove their innocence. Haven't you found that to be the case? It's ironic, isn't it, that some of the same people who will do that would say how antiquated our faith is, how backward it is, how we're living like it's ancient times listening to an ancient book, all the while subscribing to an ancient justice system themselves. We have to be aware of this, because if you just think it's out there, you need to think again, because it's in here. What happens the moment you hear an accusation? Are you traipsing to the ancient court system because you already have a predisposed thought about that person? It's a helpful thing to think about. But according to God, that kind of system of justice is no justice at all. And His people must be different than that. They must be set apart. They must be 
holy. So in Israel, no one can be condemned to death on the word of one person. Deuteronomy will go on to say, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And here's what's interesting. If, if it's found out that the person who testified was lying, then the false witness actually gets the punishment that the accused person would have gotten. Look at Deuteronomy 19. This is Deuteronomy 19. If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You think that would slow down litigation? You think that would slow down false accusations? It would slow down people just walking around and because I just think some particular thing, I'm just going to accuse you or you or you or you based on something else, but I'm just going to throw an accusation out there. And if you would have gotten five to ten for that and it's found out that I'm lying, I'm going to get the five to ten. <laughs> that would slow things down pretty quickly, right? Truth would become much more important. God wants his people to be different. I mean, after all, the most heinous lie that can be told is one that violates justice and sends an innocent person to his death. That's why Solomon, the only other place this exact phrase is used, bear false witness against your neighbor, is in Proverbs 25 as, as Solomon is talking to his son. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. You don't actually have to get outside the Bible before you find an example of this, do you? Because this is precisely what happened in the trial of our Lord Jesus. Do you remember his trial? Matthew 26 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. And their words corroborated one another. And that was all they needed. For injustice to be carried out. So as God establishes Israel and prepares them to administer justice in their society, He says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, that's the specific context, but I want you to think about, let's think about the broader category. The legal implications of this commandment are actually just the tip of the iceberg. I actually have a picture of an iceberg that I want you to see. It's just the tip of the iceberg. You see how just the little part there is above the water that you can see and all this mass of iceberg is underneath? That's what we actually mean when we say something is the tip of the iceberg. We mean that there's a whole lot more that you can't just see right now. And this is actually the way we've seen every single commandment, isn't it? These ten are foundational statements. They are not the sum total. They represent a whole life of faithfulness to God and of faithfulness to one another. So underneath each command, underneath each tip, as it were, lies an iceberg of implications, an iceberg of behaviors to avoid, an iceberg of sinful heart attitudes. And so it is here. 
The fact that the specific context is the justice system doesn't mean that in God's mind, the courtroom is the only room where truth matters, okay? God wants His people to be a people of truth everywhere, all the time. In, in, in the book of Hosea, God is speaking, to, speaking about the sin of His people, and He says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. That is a clear reference to the Ten Commandments. Do you hear that? Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Well, it's interesting that the lying in Hosea 4 is not courtroom language. It's living room language. It's just plain old lying. You see, the heart of the Ninth Commandment in God's mind is much broader. It is that you shall not lie. You shall not lie. Don't, friends, don't, don't tell big lies thinking, thinking they will get you out of trouble, thinking they will hide your sin. Don't tell big lies in order to hurt others or to help yourself. Don't tell little lies. Small lies, fibs. Don't say, well, I really can't get to the prayer meeting tonight when really you just don't want to. Don't tell your friend you can't help them move when really you just want to watch college football instead. Don't roll down your window and tell the guy with the cardboard sign, I have no cash, when it's in your wallet. Don't flatter other people. Flatter is just insincere, exaggerated, false praise. Don't tell half-truths. Don't say what's true and then keep back something that would actually make you look bad. Don't hide the truth thinking you can protect yourself. Don't mislead others. Don't misquote sources. Don't misinterpret facts so that you gain an advantage. Don't overstate your accomplishments. Don't emphasize the failures of others. Don't exaggerate them. Even when it comes to getting a job, Getting the promotion. I saw a study this week from some time back. I don't know exactly when the study happened. But it said that nearly 50% of all American resumes has at least one lie on it. Now some of you, particularly the Irish among us, will know the name George O'Leary. In 2001, George O'Leary landed his dream job, head coach at Notre Dame football. And he held that position for five days because it was discovered that he lied. He lied about his academic record. He lied about his athletic record. He lost his job, and he lost his reputation. And in an article in Sports Illustrated, it was interesting to hear what his brother had to say about it. His brother said, is anyone trying to tell me that resumes are truthful? 
In the America we live in, the willingness to lie on a resume is an indication of how much you want the job. That's how commonplace lying is. Because everybody, if you just straight up ask them, is it right to lie, they'll say, no, 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 you should never lie. Don't lie. Don't teach your children to lie. Don't do that. But then when they walk outside that conversation, they're out in the world, they're like, well, I mean, you have to massage the truth if you're going to get by. You're going to have to, you've got to exaggerate, you're going to have to lie. Lying is like a necessary evil to really make it. You shall not lie. And notice... We can lie against our neighbor. In opposition to them, words can destroy reputations. Words can smear character. Words can ruin a good name. So we must beware of using words as weapons, of twisting truth, taking it out of context to hurt others, to hurt a co-worker, to hurt a family member, to hurt a spouse, to hurt a child, to hurt a parent, to hurt someone on the other side of the political aisle. Don't spread rumors. Don't slander. Don't gossip. Don't speak with malicious intent. And friends, don't listen to it. Do you want to know how it gets seeped down into your tongue so deeply? Well, we're not helping ourselves if the AM radio station that we're listening to is only telling us how to slander and how to gossip and how to rumor and how to hate and how to speak with malicious intent. Thomas Watson said, He who raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue. He who receives a slander carries the devil in his ear. All twisting of the truth is harmful and awful and evil and condemned by God. We, friends, we must be a people of the truth. We will amen that in so many cases, except when the door of our heart is opened up and someone speaks into there. We must be a people of truth. And, and listen, friends, it would be, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that nowhere is this more important than when we speak about God. Don't lie about God. Don't say the Lord told me when you just want to do what you want to do. Don't compromise the truth and tell your friend who subscribes to another religion that it is just as true as Christianity. Don't tell your Christian friend that God's greatest desire is to make them feel good about themselves and to make them feel happy and to make their life easier. When, when, friends, God's desire is to make us like Jesus and Jesus did not have a healthy, healthy, wealthy, you know, worry-free existence here on this earth, did He? It is through suffering that Jesus is now in glory and we expect that through glory we will make it to glory. Don't lie to your friends by saying that. 
Don't lie to them and tell them maybe medicine will cure their soul. There is only one who cures the soul. And it is not your GP. And as with the slander against other people, which we ought not to speak, we ought not to speak lies about God, we ought not to listen to lies about God. You see, friends, the Joel Osteens and the Joyce Myers of the world will say true things. They will. There's no sense in hiding that. But they also spew false teaching. And some wonder if that matters. I mean, after all, I enjoy it, and I know they say true things. And plus, I just like it. I enjoy it. Well, let me ask you a question. If your doctor diagnosed you correctly and prescribed medicine correctly 10% of the time, or even 50% of the time, even 60% of the time, would you keep going? The sad truth is some would because they really like their doctor. I like this doctor. He's very kind. She's very witty. They tell me I'm, I'm doing great when I, when I cut down four pieces of cake after dinner to three and a half. <laughs> and even though we will walk down that road because it feels good, we actually think that feeling good is, be, is more important than our health at that, at that point. The body is still unhealthy, and indeed it is in danger. And friends, your soul is unhealthy, and your soul is in danger if you just will take in whatever comes along because there is some truth in it. You will hear that same truth in a thousand other places. You don't have to have that vessel. And I would expect you, friend, to do the exact same thing to me. I would expect you to bring boxes on Monday morning and help me pack and send me on my way if I am going to teach you something other than the truth. You must do it for the sake of the glory of Jesus and for the sake of your own soul. You shall not lie. You shall not listen to lies. You shall not live by lies. According to Proverbs 6, a lying tongue is at the top of the list of things that God hates. And Proverbs 12 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Whether those lying lips are in office or whether those lying lips are on your face. They are an abomination to the Lord. Do you see how big the iceberg is? Do you see how deep it goes? Well, that brings us to the third thing, which is the needed change. We know the destructive power of lies. They destroy friendships. They rip apart families. They rob the innocent of injustice. They ruin society. Something has to change. And my... I just got to wondering, are words the actual problem? 
You know, if we were just a mute society, would that be better? Would we be better off? Is the solution to gossip and slander, listening to the old grandmotherly advice that if you have nothing kind to say, don't say anything at all? Well, that's fine as far as it goes, but the answer biblically is no, that's actually not the end. That's not the solution. Because Paul writes to the Ephesian, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see, friend, a liar is no longer a liar, not when he goes silent, not when he can't speak anymore. A liar is no longer a liar when he tells the truth, when that exchange has happened. But there's a problem with that, you see, because lying is more than a bad habit that just needs to be changed. It's not just a behavior that we need to conform to some standard so we seem more truthful. Lying is actually a symptom. Lying is a rotten piece of fruit on a sick tree. You see, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lying is an indication that something is wrong with my heart, not simply my mouth. You see, the heart of lying doesn't believe the truth is good enough. The heart of lying believes that the lie is more satisfying than the truth, more useful than the truth, more valuable than the truth. The heart of lying believes that self-protection is better than confession. It's better than admitting guilt. The heart of lying believes that what is false will serve me and my agenda far better than the truth will. And that's what I really want, isn't it? What I really want is to serve me and my agenda. And the truth won't get me there. Lying will. The heart of lying actually likes to grade sins, doesn't it? Well, it's just lying. You ever put the word just before lying? Or little white in front of the word lie? It's just a little, it's just a little white lie. It's just a fib. Let's see if we can make a smaller word to make it seem smaller. That is evidence of a heart gone wrong. You see, the heart of lying actually believed that others telling the truth to me is more important than me telling the truth to others. The heart of lying likes to focus on the falsehoods of others rather than the falsehood of self. You see, the heart of lying actually doesn't first deceive other people. It first deceives self. It says, I, I don't have a problem here. This is not an issue. And the Apostle John, with all the love that he can muster up, says, if anyone says he has no sin, he's deceived himself. And the truth isn't in him. Well, I don't sin like that. I've never falsely represented myself or, or anything else. Well, the truth is not in us if we say that. Now, my guess is that someone here would like to raise, this is interactive, someone would like to raise their hand and say something like, uh, hang on just a second. I mean, I lie, but it is not as bad as you're making it out to be. It is, 
I, I mean, it, it, it's not like, I mean, what you're saying sounds really awful, but my lying isn't that way. Ah, but friend, that's precisely what the heart of lying would want you to believe. Would want you to believe that. And in doing so, it weaves this tangled web of deception so tangled, so deep, so dark that your heart is trapped. You see, the Bible actually says that lying is a chief piece of evidence of our depravity as human beings. Paul writes, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. You see, what we think is no big deal is actually evidence of the biggest problem that we face as human beings. Lying is part of what first separated us from God. In the garden, Eve was deceived by Satan's lie, told that there would be no consequences if you disobey God, told, you know, God is holding out on you. And she believed it, and Adam believed it, and they sinned, and all mankind fell into sin with them. And the tight grip of sin still has us. We still believe lies. We still think there are no real consequences to sin, especially something as small as lying. We still think God is holding out on us something really good that we could have. It's kind of this, it's what children do with parents when they say no, isn't it? Children tend to believe that gosh, mom and dad are really holding out something that would be incredible for my life if they would only say yes. And we take that childish point of view and we look to God and we say, why do you say no to this? Because it would be really great if you would just say yes. We believe that lie. We believe the lie that we don't need God. We believe the lie that our ways are better than God's ways. You see, in a very real sense, underneath every single sin is a lie. Now, you just think about that. Friends, something has to change. But it's not our habits that need to change, it's our hearts. Because lying has wormed its way down into our hearts and it won't let go. What we need is the truth. We need truth that takes us to the truth, capital T. We need Jesus who is the embodiment of truth to rescue us, to rescue us from lies. To rescue us from self-deception. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He faithfully spoke God's truth. He lived in perfect obedience to God's truth. He identifies himself as the way and the truth and the life. You see, there is no other way to the Father except through this truth 
through Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross, and He hangs there for us who are liars. He hangs there in our place. He hangs there as if He were the liar. And He suffers God's wrath for our lying. And He takes the penalty, and He dies for us. You see, truth went to the cross to save liars. And friend, He will save you. He will forgive you if you will come to Him in repentance and faith, if you will turn from the lies that you have been believing and come to the truth of Jesus. What will happen is Jesus will pry the hands of sin off your heart so that the penalty no longer remains. You are actually set free from the power of sin. Sin no longer is master over you. And He will set your heart free, free from lies, free to know and love the truth, free to live in truth, free to rejoice in the truth, and free to speak the truth. You see, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It won't just untangle the web of any particular circumstance. It will cut you free of the web of God's wrath that awaits. Because just a few verses later, in very similar language, Jesus says, If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to escape the trap? The trap of lies, the lies you've spoken, the lies you've believed. Don't you want to be free? There's only one who can, and that's the Lord Jesus. Changing your habits won't set you free. Trying real hard this week won't set you free. But Jesus Christ can set you free if you will come to him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you acknowledging and confessing that you are the God of truth and that in our sin we have lived by lies, lies that have put shackles on our wrists and on our ankles, lies that have bound us in slavery to sin. Oh God, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke the truth and lived the truth and is the truth and that he can set us free and he has set us free through his death. Father, I pray for those who have not been set free who are captive to the lies of the enemy, who are captive to the lies of believing that their way is better than any other way, who believe that the sin that they commit is just natural, it's just part of life, it's just what you do. Oh God, set us free from those kind of lies. Set us free to love and live and believe truth.
Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, and true humility through these commandments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing uh, a verse of one hymn, and then we'll be...